Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist, strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn born and Brooklyn made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, have one thing in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest, and I'm really excited to talk to this young woman, is Dr. Tia Kansara, founder Replenish Earth. So glad to have you with me. Oh, boy. And I love giving you your full title, Well Earned. (laughs) Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on the show. I'm super excited to be connecting to you during this chat, but also to all of your listeners. Yes, definitely. You know, we have a lot of ground to cover because I think you're one of these people that has been in so many different experiences and you are so grounded in a world that I think people think of as very, and I mean this in in one particular way, very science, very engineering, very like analytical, but yet you're endeavoring to make our human aspects intertwined and interwoven in these spaces. So I think it's a very important conversation to have. Let's start off by just letting you tell our listeners what Replenish Earth is all about. Absolutely. Replenish Earth is a for-profit, for-purpose company based in the UK. We've had international projects which have allowed us to dig deep into what it means to protect the global commons. These can be represented in terms of sustainability and mapping out the environmental impact of a particular business, whether it's their product supply chain, can also be educating people on the potential for their business when their entire business is mapped out and translated into like the green avatar. So how does the business that you run at the moment or the government policy work that you're doing at the moment transform or transition to its environmental avatar? That's basically what we do. Initially, when I hear that, I think to myself that they have to be huge systemic challenges to getting people to recognize the value of your approach and the value of your work. Not so much that people don't on some level understand that sustainability issues or the protecting of our commons is important, but we are locked in a system that hasn't centered those things. So you have to get them to think about their life pursuits in a different way. How do you navigate that challenge? Well, you know, Phil, that's one of the biggest things that I work on is translating what this means into every discipline. So I get called in from universities to build out their sustainability departments in all of their courses. I'm asked to develop the eco roadmap for shoe companies. I work with governments on their sustainable development projections and their vision that they can sort of hold dear to themselves. I mean, to make it extremely practical, that system requires a vision. It requires a visible direction that one is going into. So where are you right now? That's your reality. Where would you like to be in the future? And that could be, forget about the global commons. Many companies and many individuals cannot associate their own individual impact on that global map. But what we can do is associate their individual consumption habits 
and to be able to identify exactly how they connect on that system. If, for example, somebody turns around and says, well, I don't have an impact on the environment, I don't know what you're talking about, then I could quite easily look at all the products that they bought (laughs) in the last week and analyze the environmental impact of those products. So if it's, say, the carbon footprint of a particular item that they like to buy and it happens to come from China, but another four ingredients of that product also come from four different countries, or the extraction, the processing, the wastage of that product is mapped out, then it's very easy for people to see the relationship between what they do and how they live to the impact that they have on that system. So just to home in a little bit, capital accumulation or capitalism is based on that philosophy of getting more capital. Now, if this is the result, this what we see around our world is the result of that philosophy, then shifting it to living in harmony with nature means that we translate this philosophy into the economy or the system, as well as translating it further into the actual products and services that we use. And I'm using buildings, cities, your water bottle, and anything else as an actual product or a service. So that invisible layer, one could call the economic trading platform, like the way that we build economies. But the actual DNA is actually the living in harmony with nature bit. So I treat Replenish Earth as if it's an ecosystem. And that story, that capitalist story, that's so much a part of that first level, that economic trading level, how much or even is it possible to tell a different story that makes the ecosystem model actually more possible? Yeah, I think when you start to change the metrics through which we see success, all of a sudden when we use the same metric to understand something else, it doesn't really fit. So we have to actually evolve the way that we measure things and we measure the success of things as we become more familiar with the science around a subject that wasn't available before or we get to appreciate direct correlations or relationships with things. I think what's happened over the course of, you know, maybe about 50 years or so, we've created and subsidized the creation of a very specific identity. And we buy into the story of that identity. And we could see and break that down from brands to the way that they communicate with us, the very particular emotional feeling that we get when we look at a specific brand in the way that, for example, with Apple's world-class and very, very famous advertisement of you know, we believe in that change, we become that change, where the torchbearer, all the visual language that was surrounding just that one advertisement shows that we're different, but we're keen to live that difference with what feels like an upgrade. And I think that we've created an entire system around an identity. And in order for us to tap out of that identity, it means that we need to know what we're talking about. And so there's a huge amount of self-directive education. You know, at the moment, who takes parental responsibility over the Pacific Gyre, the big patch of rubbish? Who's to take responsibility over that at the moment? When we're growing up, there is parental guidance. You get to a certain age when it comes to, let's say, voting. Where's the parental equivalent guidance there, which is nonpartisan, which is open for you to have a discussion, to educate, to learn? and to evolve your own political understanding before you make really big decisions. So if I may, if I take driving, right, the road is a communal area. In order for me to learn how to use the car to prove through 
a test that I can pass it and I can understand that using this vehicle has certain risks on this road. There is an entire visual language that I must learn as well. I must pass the test, have my insurance, have a car to be able to drive down that road. And yet, if you equate the communal area of a road with the communal area of our political framework, right? Everything from how our cities are built, how the government creates policies around health and education and anything else that touches us communally. Why is it that we're not educated about this, that we're not licensed or tested for us to operate our political power in that communal space? So I think that these broader sort of narratives are coming to a point where they're just not effective anymore. And people are asking these sorts of questions. And then when we don't meet answers, but we meet the desire for many who've been running the system the same way that they have for us to just accept it. And rather than accept it, we question it and don't find those answers. That creates that frustration. I think a lot of change actually comes from that deep-rooted frustration. Are we reaching a point in that story where we're starting to allocate and think about our costs and risk in a different way? I think of myself as, as someone coming from a finance background, worked in banking, high level of comfort with balance sheets and income statements and all the rest that goes along with that particular strain of thinking. But yet, the further I got away from that, the more I realized that these costs are not really indicative of the true measure of the extractive nature of the way in which we are operating our society. As you talk through that rethinking of choice and rethinking of license and having the ability to drive on this road as compared to vote in an election, right? Do you think there's a reckoning with the social and structural cost of the way in which we've done things in the past, whether that's an accounting cost of trees are not just worth the labor of cutting them down, right? There's more to it than that. As the same way our elections are not just the cost of voting or not voting, there's a bigger richness to it. Do you think cost is being factored into the way we think about our society more? It's really fascinating. I mean, you touched a couple of points in my brain just then. Mission accomplished. <laughs> One of them was the sunk cost. It's like, we've done all of these up until this point. We've spent 50 years working and creating this system. We don't want to let it go. We've spent all that time. That time has costed us all of that research and all of that analysis and all of that implementation, all those products. And now, what do you mean we have to let that go? Right. So we have to often accept that that's water under the bridge. It's gone. It's not going to come back. So often we're influenced by what we've done in the past because that we identify with as who we are in the present although those can be mutually exclusive. Second point, which was really fascinating, is we use GDP. The 1930s onwards, we've used gross domestic product as a point of expenses. So whenever we spend money, we increase your GDP. So let's say the both of us have got two very different commercial profiles. I spend all of my money on my health. I spend money on going to the gym. I spend money on healthy nutrition. I'd never go to the doctor because I don't need to because I have a preventative measure of my lifestyle. And when it comes to my mental health, I'm very careful about how I talk to myself. 
and how I build up the entire sort of emotional evolution, emotional intelligence for myself, and also create a balance between my intellectual skills-based ikigai. Okay, every time I spend money, I am increasing the GDP there. Now, sorry, Phil, but you're a smoker, let's just say. You smoke 40 cigarettes a day. You've had lung disease for the last 10 years. The doctors have given you four sets of pills, each one of which has had other consequences that you need another pill to sacrifice right, yourself for. It's a cost to you. It's a cost to the system. GDP also goes up. So on both circumstances where one is extremely healthy, one may not be, the GDP is not a measure of determining whether the expenditure was something for a good or bad purpose. And that's why you have many countries around the world with very high GDPs, but their environmental impact is abominable. Third part of the brain that was touched was ecosystem accounting. Now, if you factor in the entire female gender of the last, let's say, 100 years, and everything that a female in the house has done, so your mother, your sister, your grandma, everybody, your wife, and everybody else has done that has not been paid for, has been ignored on the economic system, how much would that value be today? So let's take my mum. My father was a bus driver. He earned. My mum was a stay-at-home mum for a good 20 years of my life. During that time, she was a driver. She transported us around everywhere. She cooked, so she was a chef. She looked after us really well and educated us. So there's the cost of a teacher and a nanny. She made sure that she worked on our finances, so she was the accountant as well. So if you were to tally up all of the different things that my mother's services would have cost and entered all of that into the economy, then you would see the economic value shift, not just to their male counterparts, but also their female counterparts. And I think that this element of, I'm going to pick female, could have been male, right? But this element of the service work that we have not accounted is the invisible cost to families. It's the cost to education. It's the cost to communities and therefore countries. Now, we're not including any of that, but it is a cost. It's an unseen cost. And often it's something that hasn't been valued, right? Now, if we look at the natural disasters that occur in the planet. One could also say that many of these are related to certain behaviors that we have. Certain factors are anthropogenically linked. So I'm just going to take one thing. You know, whether someone believes in climate change or not, it's not my job to educate. But what it is my job to do is to show exactly how that relationship is affecting nature. So if we were to take your household waste, just for this one year up until November, how many tons would we have? And if that were your responsibility from henceforth, then you could put nothing in a landfill site. What are you going to do about it? That hidden cost to the environment. So when we hand over a piece of packaging into a dustbin, the assumption is that that dustbin, we have no responsibility for it after that. The responsibility shifts from the person to the city services to the county or country services. But beyond the country services, there's a gap. And that is between the country and the globe. And at the moment, there's no responsibility for what each country does on the globe. So often when we look at the entire externalities that often can be quite negative for 
GDP that looks brilliant. The country's doing extremely well, but we've been spending so much money on your health. It looks brilliant on the accounts, but actually you're not healthy and you're also not happy and you're most probably depressed. On an environmental perspective, whales are dying with hundreds of pieces of plastic in their bellies. Whales don't exist on the ecosystem or the food chain. Then there's going to be an overpopulation of krill and that can have all sorts of other significant changes, right? The kind of like algal blooms and all sorts of other factors if you're not getting the Vitamix effect of the whales going up and down in the oceans. So I think that there is a huge amount that is invisible. And I will say that bringing that invisible to the visible where we can actually understand that and it's an important factor of how we go forward. As you were kind of sharing those stories and, and anecdotes, it's going to tie back to something that I also think is invisible, which is time, because time came up in conversation. So I'm, I'm going to put a pin in the time piece, but I want to hit on when you were talking about this idea of hidden labor cost, and that has disproportionately, I think, affected women globally. It's affected those who are in service work. It's affected people who are in sex work. It's affected those who, what I would consider marginal in their perspective, though not in their impact work. And what struck me in your analogy about your mom and the labor that she did, it also makes me think not just also of my mother's situation, my family having an immigrant story coming to the United States from the West Indies, but how communal our experience was in the fact that it wasn't just my mom, but it was my aunts. It was friends who became godmothers and aunts. And, you know, everyone is kind of in this together, which I think speaks to that ecosystem that you were highlighting. And those connective tissues of community are invisible, but yet very strong. And I feel as if, and I'm curious your thought about this, that as we've kind of moved into this later stage of capitalism, that what were once invisible, very strong ties of community have been replaced by weaker ties of commerce. So your aunt doesn't look after you anymore. Your mom's close friend doesn't look after you anymore because she lives in the same building. You get a nanny. You've kind of farmed out what were once communal relationships and, and ties. I'm, I'm curious thoughts on, on that and how that impacts that ecosystem. Mm, I think, you know, you're totally right. You get emotional intelligence that's now bought by artificial intelligence. Communal level of wisdom that is now no longer shared down the line because the intergenerational gap is not filled. You pay for a coach. The coach often would have been your grandparent or a parental figure in your life. If you look at the Japanese model of rentai sekinin, it's responsibility within the community. And I think that what's fascinating for me, and I'm not too sure why my brain's going there, but it's for me quite similar to the way that we accept the serendipity in our lives. Like how much of your life is planned, equated to a certain commercial value, and how much of it is unplanned and equated to some level of emotional social value, environmental value, whatever. But it's like the serendipity is that invisible linkages between. But the planned time is the one that 
you know, gives you some level of confidence and security that the system works. And yet the magic is actually in that mysterious 50% or however much of your balance is. And I'm not too sure why I'm mentioning this, but in Japan, for example, you have your role as an individual citizen. But at the same time, you have your role as a person of the community, whether it's once a month or whenever, that responsibility in the community is factored into your life. And I think that there's a balance there between how much of something is equated to a measure and how much of something is equated to an immeasure, right? Something that's immeasurable. It's interesting because I want to jump on that idea of serendipity in when I'm doing work and doing talks, I try to push brands and organizations, whoever it is that I'm working with, to think about magic. You know, magic is the friction between our reality and our vision. What happens in that disconnected piece is the magic that drives us forward. I'm curious, as you've done so much work in designing ecosystems, designing, talking about cities, and design can feel like a very deterministic word. And I think oftentimes what we're trying to do is design fertile ground for serendipity, but not design the thing itself. So I'm, I'm curious about your perspectives on how you think about the design process to create and foster these type of ecosystems. Mm, absolutely. I, I love what you said there, because for me, you know, also design is the journey and less about the endpoint. It's not like designing something because that's exactly how it should look, but leaving space for that contingency. Sometimes it's contingency in terms of a budget or the time or the expertise. And other times it's something that one could never have imagined could have been a possibility. I think in terms of creativity for that platform, what is the optimum creative environment with the right amount of constraints to allow people to enjoy that journey where it's not pre-planned, but it's understood enough that if it's the example of a city that you feel secure, that the visual language of the city helps you navigate, that the services that you require are within walking distance, right? When I see so much conversation and talk around smart cities, right, that's a term that's maybe become popularized, I'll say at least in my thinking, the last decade to 15 years, I'm sure maybe the scholarship extends further back than that. But just from a layman, which I'll consider myself, it seems like that's the kind of lexicon of 10 to 15 years. But a lot of practitioners in that space are only talking about measurable, technical technological types of advancements, and those are smart. And it seems to me from, from someone who's, who's watched your work, when you think about a smart city, you're thinking about something very different. Give me a, a sense of when you think and hear that terminology, what, is, what comes to your mind? What drives Replenish Earth's focus when you think about designing smart cities or thinking about smart cities? Yeah, I'm always aware of when there is a digital or a technical sort of solution that one company is willing to offer for the measurement of the decisions that need to be made on behalf of that city for it to run optimally, smoothly, as efficiently as it can. Is it, however, effective? Does the system run in the most effective manner? 
And I think that when it comes to smart cities, I often ask, is that because you want the city to be so smart, you want the buildings to be so smart that it doesn't matter if the people are quite unsmart? Are you, by creating smart environments, making the people unsmart by virtue of their experience within the actual building? You taking away the decisions that they could have or the responsibility that they could have or the direction that they could have within that city? Are you taking away their opportunity to thrive in a city because you have determined exactly what it should be? How much space have you left for, as we called it, the design or the creative element for it to serendipitously make itself available, present itself? Cities are for thousands of years the playground for creative collaboration. The reason why people come to cities is for commercial creative collaboration. If you were to look at Athens with the Agora, the trade place, the Pnyx for debating, the temple for some level of cosmic divine grace, then the Agora exactly becomes that. The caravanserites, the Khans in the Middle East, where all of the caravans would come into one location and sell their goods and trade them and set market prices, etc., to places where you will now find more people in co-working spaces than thinking about having their own office spaces. So I think that that level of designing something so that there is no other option is almost taking away the potential for you to evolve in that environment. It's like, does the technology and behavior that that technology creates put you in a box that you don't behave outside of the box anymore? If you go into a building and you're on the 40th floor and the window doesn't open, is that taking away your relationship with fresh air? I think there are a number of layers that, of course, it's really nice for a mayor in the city to have a dashboard with all of the information about the city in real time. It allows for better decision-making. That's absolutely true. Where, however, is a little bit of leeway for individual citizens to decide on whether that's what they want or not. I want to introduce this idea of time. It came up before in my mind when you discussed this difference between the now, the reality that we're in, and then the future. You know, as a strategist, I find oftentimes organizations will talk about their future in terms of certain goals and they confuse, or my assertion is that they confuse goals with a strategy. So they'll say, oh, we want to accomplish 10% less emissions, or we want to have our public transportation look like this, or whatever the goals might be. And that becomes the marching orders without there being like a strategy to assess where they are currently in the present and how they're going to get to this future goal. And the other unattended piece of time is the past. I think there's a tendency to reject what came before because we're so much smarter now. Um, and I'm I'd curious, question that actually. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd question that. I want to ask you about that. Like, what do you think about that concept of time? Because time is one of those invisible forces that is popularly thought of as linear, but I don't know if it is. I think we're constantly going between what happened before, where we are now, what's potentially in the future and then jumping around, you know? So I'm curious as to in your thinking, how do you factor in that invisibility of, of time? 
particularly as it pertains to the past? Yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit quirky when it comes to this. I believe that the future is here just unevenly distributed around the world. I also wonder whether that future is really something that everybody needs or requires. I find that the idea of linearity when it comes to the planet is kind of like a little bit of a joke because the planet doesn't behave linearly. It behaves in seasons. Seasons change and evolve. I think I might have mentioned this before, but no summer is the same, for example. The experience that one has during that that time in summer last year is not quite what summer was this year, not even in London. So the replicability of that isn't possible, just like it's not as much as science might say that with 100% proof that we will have X replicable. Every time we run this experiment, this is going to be the outcome. And actually, what's fascinating when it comes to time is that that might not be the outcome. Give you an example of one exception to that rule. It doesn't matter how many babies your parents had, none of them were going to be identical in absolutely every single way. There is uniqueness in nature, which I think is never factored into the way that we, we see our relationship with the planet. I also I wonder if all time, past and present, future, and everything in between, all the different dimensions, are all happening at the same time. I also, because I, I mean, I'm always quite curious about people who can tap into different dimensions that, you know, are able to express something that have or haven't quite happened or happened in the past, but they wouldn't have known. And so it's really quite curious when all of those things are happening in the apparent simultaneous linearity of today's time. But I also wanted to come back to what the intelligence of the planet and humanity might have been in the past. I think perhaps I've been watching a few too many of these documentaries about the Egyptians or the pre-dynastic tribes in that region to the Mayan civilization connected with the Vedic, you know, analysis on flying objects and the physics behind that when physics today hadn't even understood the multiverse in the Sanskrit texts. There was an entire astronomical analysis on the multiverse. There was a design for the zero. There was trigonometry before the West had sort of developed that education. And I think that this isn't about West or East because, and I'm sorry to say that, because when I was in Tokyo, I really thought that that was, Tokyo was more modern in 2005 when I experienced it, more than Birmingham or even London. So what's really fascinating for me is how these cycles move and change and how the dynamic of these cycles can actually prepare us for what's coming in the future. I really do think that what's going to come next, we're not prepared for, for which Yes, you could read all the books of yesteryear, but I'm not too sure how much of that is going to prepare you for the tomorrows. And that means that everything that we are, that we've experienced in our lives is within the DNA that each one of us walks on the planet with. And that is an experiment of the planet in every single face of every single entity that lives animate or inanimate. And we've also come across all sorts of research when it comes to trees having that sort of beat of the sap going around to the way that the roots sort of connect underground, to the way that there is a sort of a, almost like a mystical relationship of all with all, or one with all. Can there really be 
an individual when you are not an event in life as a singular with no relationship with anything else? Can you really be a collective when a collective is actually a group of individuals, when an individual cannot be an individual without everything else in relation to it? I wouldn't be human unless if I had a mother. From point one, I have a relation with what is something that cannot be a unique individual occurrence. And therefore, when it comes to the scientific analysis, I think even of time, there are relationships that unfortunately we're yet to explore. So I don't really have an answer to that. But I do in body feel that these seasons are very important to humanity with our relationship with the planet and the, the cosmos in any way that it wants to communicate with us, which it did in 2015 with the whoop. <laughs> the sound of the black hole gravitational wave that came across the planet that was picked up. And I think that we're really at what will be one of the most exciting periods of, of our history as humanity to be able to connect with you on some wave, right? And that's funny, today in London, I actually walked across a place that had such a beautiful plaque, which I came across many, many years ago. And it says from this site, and it's actually very close to St. Paul's Cathedral in London. It says, Guglielmo Marconi made the first public transmission of wireless signals on 27th July, 1896. And I was thinking, gosh, I'm standing at that spot that there was this, the first ever wireless transmission. And yet here we are. What were you talking about? Wireless transmission. We're able to send packets of data across, if not visuals and sounds of echolocations of whales to six million data points across the oceans to know exactly where every single ship is, to be able to map and quantify that data and to compute it at quantum bits. I mean, the ability that we have within the space of, you know, 130 years is shocking. Right. And the speed at which that will then allow us to connect with what is the unseen educational system that I think we're tapping into will be phenomenal. And that unseen piece, again, we keep coming back, I think, to this within that invisible nature of life, within that serendipity, there's a revolution that's a cultural revolution that needs to take place to take that leap forward particularly when the, what I call the old story, the industrial age story, the story that marginalizes, is still very dominant, right? Because it speaks to us, is what we've known. It's not the only story we've ever known, but it's the story that we've known most recently. So it's a very powerful story. But yet all the things that we've touched on in different pockets, this idea of what is smart versus what's not, what is the magic slash serendipity? What is the fertile environment that we're creating? Where's the power of time and its non-linear and matrix nature? All of that requires some sort of revolution, right? Cultural revolution. And I'm using, again, old language, right? This sort of, I try to stay away from military language if I can, but I don't have another better word for revolution. Maybe you'll give us one. When you think about your work, do you center it in a space where you're thinking about that kind of cultural revolution? Yeah, I mean, the most extreme sense of it is that we don't have knowledge and we're not taught about the other senses that we have 
I find our education system very limiting. And I'll tell you why. In class, how many times have you been there where you finish your work and you're sitting there twiddling your thumbs and wondering, okay, what next? Often, the educational system is based on the law of averages. That is, take 40 students, what's the average score, and use that as a pass mark. Ultimately, the opposite of passing is to fail. Of course, you've got the gradations above that. But if you were just to take the averages, all you have to do to pass this class is to get to the average, not beyond that, not to the best that humanity in your class has ever achieved. So I think that those kinds of limitations, whether it's the educational system or the best that humans can do at the moment, is effectively that culture of the past. That's what we've done, but that was then. Now, I find that, especially in my work, I look at value-based, like core values. I'm always quite curious about what are the values of an individual and how are those expressed in their time, in their skills, in their work, in their life, and what matters most to them. I can't tell you what happens after life. I've got my own theories. But we all know is that there is an eventuality of a time in your life where you will no longer be consciously present, right? I'm not going to use the D word, consciously present, which means up until that time, how do you utilize the resources that are afforded to you? What do you do with them? So that I'm going to park that question. If there is an opportunity for one community to map out their values and express them through what they produce, then what does it look like in comparison to others? And what is it that you're hoping for the future to hold in terms of the values? Because maybe 200 years ago in India, I might have been in a better position. Who knew? Because perhaps although might not have had tuberculosis or you know, uh, poverty, everybody was fed. So are you in a better or worse off position? But I also think in terms of the epigenetic evolution of ourselves. So every time I put you in a different environment, I trigger something completely different. But also what you're born with is the history of humankind from your lineage. Right? You're a walking library of all of your genes. So recent research shows that there are emotional responses to events of the past that you yourself did not experience but your four predecessors will have, and that you will then also pass that on to your successors. So this sort of almost like the ancestral continuation of responses, just like the research that's done on monkeys who basically respond in the same way that the predecessors would have, but they have no connection, physical connection with them. So there's no physical sort of okay, Tia, make sure that you don't do this because if you do that, then you won't get a banana. So despite there not being a continuation of oral history or whatever nonverbal cues, there is still that knowledge in its successor, which I find very curious. But coming back to your question on values and senses, I believe we have more than five senses. For me, that's a given. I know that I have senses that don't have names at the moment, but I know that I sense these things. To give you an example, if I want to feel the temperature of the environment, the thermal sense, if I put something onto my hand and I could measure the, the weight of it, the sense of weight. So there are many other intuitional, energetic, spatial senses that we've yet to explore, which means our senses and immersive experiences, a way of evolving our value of our environment. And as such, does the shape of that space change the shape 
of that relationship that we have with ourselves and with others? Does that then connect to the culture as a whole? Because the values that you practice become the culture, the rituals, the arts, and every other discipline that sort of evolves from having created that. It's the informal and informal ways in which we move forward. And as you're sharing kind of this rich tapestry of bringing all these things together, I'm thinking about so many of our environments where the ideas that you're talking about to me are very complex in the sense that they're part of connected systems and those systems are not easily separable, right? You're seeing connections between one thing and how it intersects with another. And I feel like we're in a story that is often seeking it's complicated, which is very different from complex, and it's seeking simplicity. And what you're offering in your work, it's not complicated, it's complex. And so it defies being simplified. Do you ever feel in your work that tension between those who are seeking for you to simplify what is actually very complex? I mean, it's like calling chocolate sweet. Chocolate is many more things than just sweet, but it's the evolution of the sense of taste that will tell you that these are all of the taste buds that have been activated by that one piece of chocolate. So if you were to take, for example, my relationship with emotion and my body, I can express, I don't know, maybe a hundred different emotions. Whereas some people that, you know, even that I'm very close with, will struggle with more than about 15. That kind of connection with the body and expression of processing certain feelings, being able to name those emotions. I think that by no means have we got all of the answers, but I do think that we're taught to be specialists, not generalists. We're taught to have one subject at university, not 17,000. We're taught to walk one path, not to explore the rest. And this is not to say whether it's right or wrong. I think everyone's got their own journey for which they're here. But I do think that there is a lot of power in not being a specialist, in not only walking one street, in not only having one way of tasting chocolate. Any analogy that ends with chocolate, I'm all over it. (laughs) (laughs) Those are always going to be among my most favorite analogies ever. (laughs) We have two segments that I will also want to get into. The first segment is Off the Dome. Off the Dome. Off the Dome is basically, I'm going to hit you with some rapid fire questions and you literally tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. So it's very free association. You've asked for this, by the I way. Did. You've asked for it. You've asked for it. <laughs> now you're really going to see how bonkers my brain is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess... The bonkersness will depend on how bonkers the questions are, which they may be The epigenetics of it. So the first one is, as as someone who has lived, you travel a lot. You know, I I won't say you you live a a strictly nomadic lifestyle, but you got a few stamps in your passport. (laughs) So (laughs) what is the one thing that everyone who is a frequent nomadic passport stamp having mofo should always have with them? Oh, that's a really strong, important question. Mm, A ritual. A ritual that connects them to the ground. 
because otherwise they're tethered. But it's something that must tether them. And that's often a ritual, something that you do before you fly and something that you do when you return. Okay. I'm going to ask you, of all the places you've been, your favorite city. Tokyo. You were going to say that. Hands down. I mean, come on, no comparison across the world. Over 90 countries worth of cities, Tokyo. Soon to be the largest city in the world. Really? Operates more efficiently than any other city I've ever seen. Yeah. This is going to be more on the... <laughs> Why am I scared? Don't be scared. You can only go to one of these events forever. This is it. I get one choice and then I stay there yeah, forever. And then this is going to be your, this is going to be your choice going forward. Coachella, Interesting. Glastonbury, okay. or Burning Man? Burning Man. Okay, and why? Burning Man, because it's an evolution in its own urban culture shock. You will get a culture shock every year. And for me, that feeling of being lost when I know my way around many cities around the world is a desire that I have often. When you have very specific maps in your head, you know where to go, you know what you're doing. All this is the known. For me, Burning Man is the unknown. In the last year, what has been the event or the thing, the happening that has been most surprising off kilter for you? So I, I have a wonderful group of friends in Japan. One of them passed away in 2017. So I went to visit her grave this year. And there's a very special festival called Obon in Japan over the course of three to four days. And everybody in Japan goes to their home. There's a little fire that's left outside to call the spirits back home from the graves. Then there's an act of cleaning up the grave called Ohakamairi. So you clean up everyone's grave. Da, 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 da. And then you come back home and you say a prayer for them. And every single day during this like three, four day period, you feed them three times a day with you know offerings of, of beautiful decorations around their butsudan at home, which is the small temple with all of the ancestors' images. So I did this for a very dear friend of mine who I actually used to call Japanese grandma, Obachan. And she passed away about 10 days after I, I saw her. And I went to Japan just to see her in 2017. Another friend of mine told me that she was not very well. So my next opportunity was that week that I spent with her. During the Obon clear out of the grave, I couldn't feel her there. But when I went back to her home, I sensed a feeling that she was present. And that feeling was as if she was giving me a hug. And I would know because it was her, give me a hug. And it was like, she was giving me a hug. Not you, Phil, sorry, but it was her. And I think that as an experience for me was a first ever. And I've never, I never knew that you could inherit a non-bloodline as an ancestor or a friend as an ancestor. And that was a, a striking experience for me. That's beautiful. I think that's great. I can't top that with another question. So <laughs> I'm going to go to the final segment, which is the drop. And the drop is a recommendation or something that you think our listeners would really benefit from. It could be anything at all. So hit us with your drop. You mean I can get your listeners to do something apart from listening so. to me rant for about an hour? Wow. That's the goal. Send me an email and tell me what you think. That's already curious enough for me. And answer one question. If in 50 years time you're still alive, how would you like to be living? That's your drop? Yeah, I think so. 
yeah, I'm super curious about, you know, where they want to be in 50 years time. Okay. So like, give that to me one more time, like just succinctly, because I want to make sure, because I'm going to put this in the show notes. So folks, folks are going to hit you up. (laughs) So I want them to hear what the request is. Yeah, I would love for the listeners to email me where they see themselves in 50 years time. Okay. Why 50? I don't know. Just a far enough number? A far enough number. Okay. Fair enough. It doesn't matter how old you are at the moment. Imagine that you're going to live for 50 years. What are you going to be doing? How would you like to be doing what you're doing? Okay. My drop, because I give one as well, is not as metaphysical as that. It's more of a recommendation of a band that I love called Stars. They're based out of Montreal. And I don't have a particular album or song that I'm going to recommend to our listeners. But what I'm going to say is that their entire discography is absolutely astounding. I think they're one of the more creative bands and I'm a big music head that I could think of. And each record is its own unique place and time. Each record speaks to me at different times, depending on what I'm going through, which is why I'm not giving a specific recommendation, but to say to dive into their discography, they're celebrating 20 plus years in the business around this time. So they have a lot of music out there that one can really dig into. So I'm going to say, get out there, get on your Spotify, get on your old CD store, whatever you have around you to grab some music and check out Stars out of Canada. And that's my drop. I'm going to do that. I will give you some personal recommendations as to what to listen to. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a pleasure having Dr. Tia Kansar join me on The Deep Dive. Over the course of our conversation, we emphasize the importance of building an ecosystem that works for human beings and nature. We challenge the conventional wisdom on smart cities, the meaning of work, and who gets rewarded for doing what in our current economic system. And we even talked about the notion of linear time. So yeah, we went there and I hope you enjoyed it. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave a review and let us hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via Far Flung Phil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.